Chapter thirty nine of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter thirty nine. The Watchful Eye. As I parted with Miss Oliver on Mrs. Desberger's stoop, and did not visit her again in that house, I will introduce the report of a person better situated than myself to observe the girl during the next few days. That the person thus alluded to was a woman in the service of the police is evident, and as such may not meet with your approval, but her words are of interest, as witness. Friday, P.M. Party went out today in company with an elderly female of respectable appearance. Said elderly female wears puffs and moves with great precision. I say this in case her identification should prove necessary. I had been warned that Miss O would probably go out, and as the man set to watch the front door was on duty, I occupied myself during her absence in making a neat little hole in the partitions between our two rooms, so that I should not be obliged to offend my next-door neighbor by too frequent visits to her apartment. This done, I awaited her return, which was delayed till it was almost dark. When she did come in, her arms were full of bundles. These she thrust into a bureau drawer, with the exception of one, which she laid with great care under her pillow. I wondered what this one could be, but could get no inkling from its size or shape. Her manner when she took off her hat was fiercer than before, and a strange smile, which I had not previously observed on her lips, added force to her expression. But it paled after supper-time, and she had a restless night. I could hear her walk the floor long after I thought it prudent on my part to retire, and at intervals through the night I was disturbed by her moaning, which was not that of a sick person, but of one very much afflicted in mind. Saturday. Party quiet sits most of the time with hands clasped on her knee before the fire. Given to quick starts as if suddenly awakened from an absorbing train of thought. A pitiful object, especially when seized by terror, as she is at odd times. No walks, no visitors today. Once I heard her speak some words in a strange language, and once she drew herself up before the mirror in an attitude of so much dignity I was surprised at the fine appearance she made. The fire of her eyes at this moment was remarkable. I should not be surprised at any move she might make. Sunday. She has been writing today. But when she had filled several pages of letter paper, she suddenly tore them all up and threw them into the fire. Time seems to drag with her, for she goes every few minutes to the window from which a distant church clock is visible and sighs as she turns away. More writing in the evening, and some tears. But the writing was burned as before, and the tears stopped by a laugh that augurs little good to the person who called it up. The package has been taken from under her pillow and put in some place not visible from my spy-hole. Monday. Party out again today. Gone some two hours or more. When she returned, she sat down before the mirror and began dressing her hair. She has fine hair, and she tried arranging it in several ways. 
None seemed to satisfy her, and she tore it down again and let it hang till supper-time, when she wound it up in its usual simple knot. Mrs. Desberger spent some minutes with her, but their talk was far from confidential, and therefore uninteresting. I wish people would speak louder when they talk to themselves. Tuesday. Great restlessness on the part of the young person I am watching. No quiet for her. No quiet for me. Yet she accomplishes nothing, and as yet has furnished me no clue to her thoughts. A huge box was brought into the room to-night. It seemed to cause her dread rather than pleasure, for she shrank at the sight of it, and has not yet attempted to open it. But her eyes have never left it since it was set down on the floor. It looks like a dressmaker's box, but why such emotion over a gown? Wednesday. This morning she opened the box but did not display its contents. I caught one glimpse of a mass of tissue paper, and then she put the cover on again, and for a good half hour sat crouching down beside it, shuddering like one in an ague fit. I began to feel there was something deadly in the box. Her eyes wandered towards it so frequently and with such contradictory looks of dread and savage determination. When she got up, it was to see how many more minutes of the wretched day had passed. Thursday. Party sick. Did not try to leave her bed. Breakfast brought up by Mrs. Desberger, who showed her every attention, but could not prevail upon her to eat. Yet she would not let the tray be taken away, and when she was alone again, or thought herself alone, she let her eyes rest so long on the knife lying across the plate, that I grew nervous and could hardly restrain myself from rushing into the room. But I remembered my instructions and kept still, even when I saw her hand steal towards this possible weapon, though I kept my own on the bell-rope, which fortunately hung at my side. She looked quite capable of wounding herself with the knife, but after balancing it a moment in her hand, she laid it down again and turned with a low moan to the wall. She will not attempt death till she has accomplished what is in her mind. Friday. All is right in the next room. That is, the young lady is up, but there is another change in her appearance since last night. She has grown contemptuous of herself and indulges in less brooding. But her impatience at the slow passage of time continues, and her interest in the box is even greater than before. She does not open it, however, only looks at it and lays her trembling hand now and then on the cover. Saturday. A blank day, party dull and very quiet. Her eyes begin to look like ghastly hollows in her pale face. She talks to herself continually, but in a low, mechanical way, exceedingly wearing to the listener, especially as no word can be distinguished. Tried to see her in her own room today, but she would not admit me. Sunday. I have noticed from the first a Bible laying on one end of her mantel shelf. Today she noticed it also and impulsively reached out her hand to take it down. But at the first word she read she gave a low cry and hastily closed the book and put it back. Later, however, she took it again and read several chapters. The result was a softening in her manner, but she went to bed as flushed and determined as ever. Monday. She has walked the floor all day. 
She has seen no one and seems scarcely able to contain her impatience. She cannot stand this long. Tuesday. My surprises began in the morning. As soon as her room had been put in order, Miss O. locked the door and began to open her bundles. First she unrolled a pair of white silk stockings, which she carefully but without any show of interest laid on the bed. Then she opened a package containing gloves. They were white also and evidently of the finest quality. Then a lace handkerchief was brought to light, slippers, an evening fan, and a pair of fancy pins. And lastly she opened the mysterious box and took out a dress so rich in quality and of such simple elegance it almost took my breath away. It was white and made of the heaviest satin, and it looked as much out of place in that shabby room as its owner did in the moments of exultation of which I have spoken. Though her face was flushed when she lifted out the gown, it became pale again when she saw it lying across her bed. Indeed, a look of passionate abhorrence characterized her features as she contemplated it, and her hands went up before her eyes, and she reeled back, uttering the first words I have been able to distinguish since I have been on duty. They were violent in character, and seemed to tear their way through her lips almost without her volition. It is hate, I feel, nothing but hate. Ah, if it were only duty that animated me. Later she grew calmer, and covering up the whole paraphernalia with a stray sheet she had evidently laid by for the purpose, she sent for Mrs. Desberger. When that lady came in she met her with a wan but by no means dubious smile, and ignoring with quiet dignity the very evident curiosity with which that good woman surveyed the bed, she said appealingly, You have been so kind to me, Mrs. Desberger, that I am going to tell you a secret. Will it continue to remain a secret, or shall I see it in the faces of all my fellow boarders to-morrow? You can imagine Mrs. Desberger's reply, also the manner in which it was delivered, but not Miss Oliver's secret. She uttered it in these words, I am going out to-night, Mrs. Desberger. I am going into great society. I am going to attend Miss Althorpe's wedding. Then, as the good woman stammered out some words of surprise and pleasure, she went on to say, I do not want anyone to know it, and I would be so glad if I could slip out of the house without anyone seeing me. I shall need a carriage, but you will get one for me, will you not, and let me know the moment it comes? I am shy of what folks say, and besides, as you know, I am neither happy nor well. If I do go to weddings, and have new dresses, and... She nearly broke down, but collected herself with wonderful promptitude, and with a coaxing look that made her almost ghastly, so much it seemed out of accord with her strained and unnatural manner. She raised a corner of the sheet, saying, I will show you my gown if you will promise to help me quietly out of the house, which of course produced the desired effect upon Mrs. Desberger, that woman's greatest weakness being her love of dress. So from that hour I knew what to expect, and after sending precautionary advices to police headquarters, I set myself to watch her prepare for the evening. I saw her arrange her hair and put on her elegant gown, and was as much startled by the result as if I had not had the least premonition that she only needed rich clothes 
to look both beautiful and distinguished. The square parcel she had once hidden under her pillow was brought out and laid on the bed, and when Mrs. Desberger's low knock announced the arrival of the carriage, she caught it up and hid it under the cloak she hastily threw about her. Mrs. Desberger came in and put out the light, but before the room sank into darkness, I caught one glimpse of Miss Oliver's face. Its expression was terrible beyond anything I had ever seen on any human countenance. End of chapter 39 Chapter 40 As the clock struck I do not attend weddings in general, but great as my suspense was in reference to Miss Oliver, I felt that I could not miss seeing Miss Althorpe married. I had ordered a new dress for the occasion and was in the best of spirits, as I rode to the church in which the ceremony was to be performed. The excitement of a great social occasion was for once not disagreeable to me, nor did I mind the crowd, though it pushed me about rather uncomfortably till an usher came to my assistance and seated me in a pew, which, I was happy to see, commanded a fine view of the chancel. I was early, but then I always am early, and having ample opportunity for observation, I noted every fine detail of ornamentation with approval. Miss Althorpe's taste being of that fine order which always falls short of ostentation. Her friends are in very many instances my friends, and it was no small part of my pleasure to note their well-known faces among the crowd of those that were strange to me. That the scene was brilliant and that silks, satins, and diamonds abounded goes without saying. At last the church was full and the hush which usually precedes the coming of the bride was settling over the whole assemblage when I suddenly observed in the person of a respectable-looking gentleman seated in a side pew the form and features of Mr. Grice, the detective. This was a shock to me, Yet what was there in his presence there to alarm me? Might not Miss Althorpe have accorded him this pleasure out of pure goodness of her heart? I did not look at anybody else, however, after once my eyes fell upon him, but continued to watch his expression, which was non-committal, though a little anxious for one engaged in a purely social function. The entrance of the clergyman and the sudden peal of the organ in the well-known wedding march recalled my attention to the occasion itself, and as at that moment the bridegroom stepped from the vestry to await his bride at the altar, I was absorbed by his fine appearance and the air of mingled pride and happiness with which he watched the stately approach of the bridal procession. But suddenly there was a stir through the whole glittering assemblage, and the clergyman made a move and the bridegroom gave a start, and the sound, slight as it was, of moving feet grew still, and I saw advancing from the door on the opposite side of the altar a second bride, clad in white and surrounded by a long veil which completely hid her face. A second bride, and the first was halfway up the aisle, and only one bridegroom stood ready. The clergyman, who seemed to have as little command of his faculties, as the rest of us, tried to speak. But the approaching woman, upon whom every regard was fixed, forestalled him by an authoritative gesture. Advancing towards the chancel, she took her place on the spot reserved for Miss Althorpe. 
Silence had filled the church up to this moment, but at this audacious move a solitary wailing cry of mingled astonishment and despair went up behind us. But before any of us could turn, and while my own heart stood still, for I thought I recognized this veiled figure, the woman at the altar raised her hand and pointed towards the bridegroom. Why does he hesitate? she cried. Does he not recognize the only woman with whom he dare face God and man at the altar? Because I am already his wedded wife, and have been so for five long years, does this make my wearing of this veil amiss when he, a husband, unreleased by the law, dares enter this sacred place with the hope and expectation of a bridegroom? It was Ruth Oliver who spoke. I recognized her voice as I had recognized her apparel, but the emotions aroused in me by her presence and the almost incredible claims she advanced were lost in the horror inspired by the man she thus vehemently accused. No lost spirit from the pit could have shown a more hideous commingling of the most terrible passions known to man than he did in the face of this terrible arraignment. And if Ella Althorpe, cowering in her shame and misery halfway up the aisle, saw him in all his depravity at that instant as I did, nothing could have saved her long-cherished love from immediate death. Yet he tried to speak. It is false, he cried, all false. The woman I once called wife is dead. Dead? Olive Randolph? Murderer! she exclaimed. The blow struck in the dark found another victim, and pulling the veil from her face, Ruth Oliver advanced to his side and laid her trembling hand with a firm and decisive movement on his arm. Was it her words, her touch, or the sound of the clock striking eight in the great tower over our heads, which so totally overwhelmed him? As the last stroke of the hour which was to have seen him united with Miss Althorpe died out in the awed spaces above him, he gave a cry such as I am sure never resounded between those sacred walls before, and sank in a heap on the spot where but a few minutes previous he had lifted his head in all the glow and pride of a prospective bridegroom. End of chapter 40